true worship can only occur through the intercession of Christ, our appointed mediator, and our great high priest. That is why when we worship, in whose name do we pray? In the name of Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in his current series titled The Heart of Worship. So far over our series, Tom has taught on the four principles of biblical worship. Today he comes to the fifth and final rule of worship. In order for true worship to occur, it must be centered in Jesus Christ in all sincerity and humility. Does it follow that it's possible to worship in any religion just as long as you do so in sincerity and humility? Well, there are some who hold the view that all religions ultimately worship the same God. But is that what the Bible teaches? In whose name do you pray and worship? Keep this important question in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I invite you for the last time to turn to John chapter 4. We've studied this really amazing paragraph of interchange between our Lord and the woman at Jacob's well, the Samaritan woman. Let me ask you this morning, what is it you live for? I've often been struck by the profundity of the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this about himself. For to me, to live is Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. Let me ask you this morning, can you honestly say that before the Lord about your own life? For to me, to live is Christ. Really, that's the heart of our Christian faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on that phrase from Philippians chapter 1, writes this, Living to the Christian does not mean God. Is that irreverent or extreme? Is that going too far? I suggest it is not. A Jew or a Muslim can say quite honestly that life to him means God, and there are many in the world who can say that God is the center of their lives. So, that in this statement of Paul's, it is the specific Christ language, that is the statement that is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. To me, to live is what? Christ. Lloyd-Jones was right. And what I want us to discover today, if I can paraphrase the, the Apostle Paul, is that for the true Christian, not only to live is Christ, but To worship is Christ. In these verses, Jesus teaches us how to worship. He opens up for us the heart of worship. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 20 and running down through verse 26, Jesus identifies for us several inviolable laws of worship. Wherever there's true worship, these things are always there. And wherever they're absent, There is no true worship. The woman there, the Samaritan woman, said to Christ, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now in that short paragraph, we learn several laws of worship. Let me just briefly review the ones that we've studied together. Law number one, true worship is not external but must rise from the heart. You see this in verses 20 and 21. It's not about a place. It's not about your body being in a certain location. That's not worship. It starts in the heart. Number two, true worship is not merely emotional, but must result from knowledge. The Samaritans were plenty emotional in their worship, but Jesus tells this woman in verse 22 that they don't even know what they're worshiping. Their worship was not an informed, knowledgeable worship, and therefore it wasn't worship at all. Number three, true worship is not intuitive, but must be directed by God's truth. We saw this in verse 23. We must worship in truth. That is, we must worship in accordance with God's complete revelation, but specifically We must worship in regard to the truth about worship itself. And we studied worship and came up with a definition of worship. Let me remind you of the definition at which we arrived. Worship, we learned, is seeing and savoring the supreme value and worthiness of God and responding in humble submission, thankful praise and adoration, and godly fear. Worship is seeing God for all that he is and responding appropriately to him. We also learn that our worship must be directed not only by the truth about worship, but by the truth about God as the object of worship. We took great time to look at what we should know about God if we're going to worship in truth. That brings us to the fourth law that we learned together. True worship is not superficial but must be in spirit. We learned this in verse 24. God is a spirit, and therefore we must worship God in spirit. At its heart, in other words, true worship demands participation, your participation. When we surveyed the scripture to see what it really means to worship in spirit, what that is entailing, we saw that the right kind of participation can be described in four adjectives. To worship in spirit means that our worship is internal as opposed to external. It means that our worship is authentic or sincere. It means that our worship is passionate as opposed to half-hearted. And it means that our worship is active. You, as I reminded you at the beginning, are not the audience. True worship involves active participation. You are the actors. I am merely prompting you with your lines, and the real audience is God. That's what it means to worship in spirit. When I first studied this passage, 
I thought there were only four laws of worship here, but over the 10 weeks I've studied it, I've come, become convinced that there is a fifth, and today I want us to finish our study of this profound paragraph by briefly examining the fifth and final law of worship, and it's this. True worship is not general, but must be centered in Jesus Christ. True worship is not general. That is, it's not, it's not generic. It's not whatever you want it to be. It's not about God in general, but rather it is centered in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25 and verse 26. At the end of this discussion, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, it's been a long time since we looked at it together, but remember who this woman was. She was a Samaritan. When the Assyrians in 722 BC, when the Assyrians came into northern Israel and took Samaria captive and carried most of the people away, they left just a few Jewish people in the land. They imported people from all over the Assyrian Empire. And eventually, those imported people married those few Jews who remained in the land. The result was what the Jewish people saw as a half-breed race called the Samaritans. At first, they were polytheists, that is, they worshipped many gods. But eventually, they came to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but with a couple of very strange twists. One is, they refused to go to Jerusalem to worship. Instead, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, that mountain that was the mountain of blessing back in Deuteronomy. Secondly, they accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament as inspired. They rejected the rest. So now you can see with that in mind how remarkable this woman's response to Jesus really is. She had only the first five books of the Bible. And from the nature of her life, she obviously was not a constant student of Scripture either. But when Jesus started talking with her about worship, her mind immediately went to the coming of Messiah. While the Samaritans' view of the Messiah was severely limited because they did only have the first five books, they did expect and anticipate the Messiah that he would come. And that's the expectation that's reflected in these verses. They looked for the greater prophet than Moses, the one that the great Moses himself had predicted would come. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is where that great hope came from. Deuteronomy 18, the last of the five books of Moses. And as Moses was preparing for his own death, he said this to the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Notice singular, one prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And in Hebrew, the pronoun is singular. We're talking about one person here. The Lord's going to raise up. This is according, according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, don't let us hear again the voice of God. Don't let us see the great fire. We'll die. You remember at Sinai, back in Exodus 19, this is what happened. 
The Lord said, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God had told the people through Moses that a great prophet was coming. And they came to understand that that was the Messiah. The Jewish people understood that it was Messiah. The Samaritans understood that it was Messiah. And when you come to the New Testament, this passage is used by the early, in the early sermons in Acts as proof that it was Jesus Christ, that this was none other, this great prophet was none other than Jesus Christ. You see it in Peter's sermon in Acts 3. You see it in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. They go back to this passage and say, that's Jesus. He is the Messiah, the prophet to come. So the Samaritans, including the sinful woman, anticipated the prophet who would come. And her knowledge of this prophet is really quite remarkable. Notice that she knew he would be a unique person, that he would be sent by God, that he would be specially anointed by God. That's what the Hebrew word means. In fact, the Hebrew word is Hamashiach. Ha being the, the article, the definite article, the, and Mashiach being the word for the anointed one, the Messiah. When that word, Hamashiach, is transliterated into English or Greek, it becomes Messias in Greek or Messiah in English. When it is translated into Greek, it becomes Christos. And when Christos is put into an anglicized form, it becomes Christ. So in your Bible, in the New Testament, whenever you read the word Christ, you are in essence reading the Greek translation of that Hebrew term, Hamashiach, the Messiah. So Hamashiach, Messiah, and Christ are all exactly the same thing. They all mean the anointed one, someone specially selected and appointed by God. In other words, this woman understood that God had promised to send a unique person specially anointed. The question is, anointed for what? What was he especially anointed to do? Look at verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christos, or in Greek, Christos. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. The Greek word that's translated declare here means to announce, to proclaim, to teach, to preach. The Messiah would be especially anointed to be a teaching prophet. That's what Jesus was, wasn't he? He did miracles, but the thrust of his ministry was his teaching. You see, when Messiah comes, this woman was saying, he will tell us all that we need to know about God he will supply our defects. He will correct our mistakes. He will put an end to all of our disputes. He will tell us the mind of God fully and clearly, and he'll keep nothing back that we need to know. This woman was saying to Jesus, listen, you've had some interesting things to say in this conversation. Some of them may be true, and some of them may not be. But I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, I'll listen to him, and I'll believe what he says. I'm going to wait to hear from him. 
She understood that the Messiah was the only true source of truth and that he was the only true mediator between God and men. She understood a lot. And in response to that, for the first time in his ministry, Jesus announces that he is none other than the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now understand that Jesus' words to this woman are more than a statement of fact. He doesn't just want her to know this. This is in fact for her and for us an invitation to believe in him. I am he. I am the Messiah. Listen to me. Believe in me. This woman, I believe, responded. If you go back to John chapter 4, look down at verse 41. Later in that same day, in that same story, many more believed because of his word, that is, in the town where she lived, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. She had come to the conclusion he was the Savior of the world. She had shared this with these people, and they had come to embrace the same thing with their own ears from the mouth of Christ. I believe we'll someday meet this woman in heaven, and we'll have the joy of asking her more about this remarkable conversation. But I don't want you to miss the profound lesson in this verse. The very first time that Jesus announced that he was Israel's Messiah, he tells a half-breed Samaritan, a woman, and not just any woman, mind you, but a terribly immoral woman. This is God's grace. God's grace on display that day at the well outside of Sychar. It's not surprising that John included this encounter between Jesus and the woman when the other gospel writers don't because John tells us near the end of his, of his gospel why he was writing. You remember it? John chapter 20, he says, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. In other words, there are a lot of things I could have told you. There are a lot of different stories and accounts I could have included. But these have been written. John's saying, here's why I wrote so that, in order that, you, you the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christos, Hamashiach, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. You see, true worship, John wanted us to know, and Christ wanted this woman to know, must not be general, but it must be centered in him it must be centered in Christ. Now, how does this fifth law apply? Practically, what does it mean for your worship to be centered in Christ? Sheila and I were talking last night, and I sometimes use the expression Christ-centered or cross-centered, and I've become more convinced than ever through this year that both I individually, our, my family, and our church must be both Christ-centered and cross-centered, but I think we get so used to those expressions, we don't even hear them anymore. Yeah, cross-centered, Christ-centered, sure. What does that mean? What does it mean for our worship to be centered in Jesus Christ? Well, there are two direct applications. First of all, we must worship, whenever we worship, 
privately, corporately, whenever, now and throughout eternity, we must worship through Christ. We must worship through Christ. Always remember that Christ and Christ alone is your mediator. Let me put it differently because there's another word we don't often really think about. Listen carefully. Christ is the only accepted channel through which your worship or all true worship can flow to the Father. Let me say that again. Christ is the only accepted channel through which all true worship flows to the Father. To be truly worshiping, we must worship the Father through the Son. Isn't that what Jesus himself said in John 14? You remember verse 6? He says, I am what? The way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but what? Through me. Don't even think about it. You can't get to God except through Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. C.W. Bromley wrote, Christian worship is at its very core and essence the worship of God the Father through God the Son. Listen to Martin Luther, the great reformer. He says, Knowing Christ and knowing the Father are tied together and are one and the same knowledge. This is why I have often said, Luther says, this is why I have often said that the Father is known only in Christ and neither will nor can be reached and found, worshipped and invoked apart from this mediator. For outside Christ there is nothing but idolatry and merely a false imagined notion about God. Truly worshipping God consists in believing on him whom the Father has sent, Jesus Christ. Luther is absolutely right now let me ask you this morning do you really understand and believe this that you have no chance of ever approaching God except through Jesus Christ that's it this morning if you find yourself here like this woman bearing the load of your sin knowing your guilt before God really not sensing any hope there's hope for you but the only way you'll ever get to God is through his son, is by bowing your knees to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And if you're already a Christian, do you understand that there will never come a time, there will never come a time in this life or eternity when you can approach the Father except through the merits and work of the Son? We don't really belong in God's presence but we can enter his presence in worship because we have an access key it's Jesus Christ or in the words of the New Testament we have a great high priest we have access or as Peter says it in 1 Peter 2 5 we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ Jesus true worship can only occur through the intercession of Christ, our appointed mediator, and our great high priest. That is why when we worship, in whose name do we pray? In the name of Christ. 
When we ask for forgiveness, we ask for forgiveness because of Christ. When we give our confession, what is the simplest Christian confession in the New Testament? Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. When we give, why do we give? What is the impetus Paul gives to have us give and worship? It's because of the gift of Christ given to us. When we preach or teach, what's the theme of our teaching and preaching? Paul said we we teach or preach Christ and Him what? Crucified. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 15 of his series, The Heart of Worship. Tom will have the final installment for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.